Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Chris Holmes, and this is Burned by Books. What does the discovery of the pigment Prussian blue have to do with the gas used in the Nazi extermination camps? And what do mysticism and delusion have to do with the rational sciences? How does scientific knowledge become a cudgel for a fascist regime? These questions await the reader of Benjamin Labatut's undefinable work of the literary imagination, when we cease to understand the world. Neither novel nor history, story nor essay, when we cease to understand the world has been called a non-fiction novel by the likes of John Banville. But as Benjamin himself rejects that limitation of his work, I suggest that we think of it as a space for literary wonder. While Benjamin lives and writes in Chile, his work is not easily placed in a national tradition. When we cease to understand the world wanders Europe and Japan looking for extraordinary thinkers whose lives deserve our attention, in forms fictional and otherwise. Benjamin and I cover an enormous amount of ground in our wide-ranging interview. We touch on Heisenberg's uncertainty principle as a way of understanding his writing process, the failure of our societies to make room for overlapping, sometimes contradictory, histories, his distaste for genre categories, the inevitable loss involved in translation, Chile's frightening presidential election, and much, much more. I know you will be enthralled and challenged and delighted by Benjamin's capacious mind. Let's jump right in. It is my great pleasure to introduce Benjamin Labatu, author of The Linked Stories, Antarctica Starts Here, winner of the Santiago Municipal Literature Award, Dispues la Luz, After the Light, which was published in 2016, and most recently, When We Cease to Understand the World, which just this week has been announced as one of the New York Times' top 10 books of the year. This wonderful news joins a dizzying year of acclaim for Benjamin's book, including being shortlisted for the International Booker Prize, the National Book Award for Translated Literature, and not for nothing, it found its way to Barack Obama's summer reading list. With each acclaim has come a new attempt to describe what precisely a reader encounters when they begin to read when we cease to understand the world. Is this a work of nonfiction, a series of linked historical anecdotes about physics and physicists? Is it a novel a reimagining of some of the most crucial scientific and mathematical discoveries of our age. 
Or is it a work that plays in the dangerous cracks and fissures between what we loosely call fiction and nonfiction? From my perspective, it seems less important what the book is and more what it does, which is ask the reader to inhabit the mind of another in the very act of thinking and discovery. We make company with some of the great minds of physics and math in the 20th century as they embark on the discoveries that would reshape our world. The fundamental transformations of how we draw nutrients from soil or observe the function of the smallest particles of matter are not, in Benjamin's telling, unadulterated triumphs. Each discovery comes hand in hand with complicity in the great atrocities of the 20th century. The search for the pigment Prussian blue is interwoven with the discovery of a deadly poison gas. The extraordinary intellectual might required to envision black holes or wave particles is not significant enough to push back against nationalism and the brutality and immorality of a world war. With each great thinker whose mind we inhabit, Haber, Schwarzschild, Grothendieck, Heisenberg, and others, we are equally absorbed and repelled by their work. And the dramatization of these lives and minds broaches in the reader a feeling of uncertainty, a wondering over the details of these famous lives. How much are we experiencing a historical figure, and to what extent are we witnessing the invention of a fabrication? The mania with which these thinkers approach their work becomes our own as we scan for fictionality, ultimately consumed by the narrative, no matter its dominant form of truth-telling. The resulting book is perfectly encapsulated by Benjamin's own description of Grothendieck's mathematical method. Quote, he did not impose his will on things, preferring to let them grow and develop by themselves. The result had an organic beauty, as though each idea had budded and borne fruit following its own vital impulse. Welcome to the show, Benjamin. Thank you so much for having me, Chris. It is my great pleasure. And I wanted to start with a, a question about the main subject of your book, and that is the lives and discoveries of scientists. This is a work of fiction that takes on those lives and those experience, experiences are narrated through largely factual elements. You dramatize scientific discovery by the likes of Schrodinger, Heisenberg, Grothendieck as a form of madness or spiritual awaking. There are fevers, sicknesses, dreams and visions, and distortions of reality that end up with the groundbreaking discoveries of the last century. Why did you want to write about scientists as a kind of mystic? Well, there's several reasons for that. The, the main one is that I am, I, am, I am fascinated by mystics and mysticism, perhaps more than I am by science. Mm. Uh, I have sort of imposed my own interests, uh, overlaid them. You know? I'm, I'm using science as a, as a method, as an excuse. I'm using ideas that, are, that come from, from very rational uh, methods to point past that to territories where we where we all feel a little bit uneasy because they seem to point past uh, the what we can really understand. Mm. But I'm not really 
interested in madness i am i am more interested in in delirium i think that it is delirium where these where the new comes from i i i take these figures and and many of them i have to also add many of them actually went through these 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 crises that i discovered not all of them mm-hmm. some of them but 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 I, i i really believe that that we are we're lived by powers that we don't understand i i think that the highest form of knowledge is is possession is not is not just thought you you're inhabited by something or something within you suddenly stirs and and that really is what most of my writing is about it it's it's not madness it's delirium and and possession do do you think that's what scientists and those who produce literature and art share in common a kind of being inhabited by something and and possessed by a delirium well i think scientists if they're good they sort of give themselves over to to the madness of the world there is mm-hmm. a profound strangeness in reality and mm-hmm. uh, scientists are people who who can actually who have a sense for that that they have a natural sense of wonder for things that most people just they they just pass by uh, i think they're they're enticed and seduced and 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 awed by the world and 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 i don't i don't think normal people realize how much a scientist is this big black hole how much we how how much we don't know how much we don't understand and and that is what drives scientists forward these obsessions are born from from a need a deep need for truth for discovery but but that is all founded on on mystery there is a, a they it's there's a sense of mystery it's a, and it's not as concrete as people would like and while and that is all, why science is so powerful because all of that is is tempered by a method a method which precludes it sort of leaves out most of what i find uh, the things i find most interesting about the world which is our inner experiences our irrationality our unconscious so what i try to do uh, in what i write is bring those things back together hmm. this uh, this sort of chiseling away at, at at the raw facts of the world and sort of weave them with with our dreams and our fantasies and our nightmares because i i think that gives a better measure of what it feels like to be alive Well your answer um, helps me to understand a little bit of your interest in Heisenberg and uncertainty. It struck me that Heisenberg's concept of observation as a form of manipulation of the subject works very well as a description of how you deal with your historical figures in the novel. Do we only understand figures from history by the limits of our own observational techniques? I think so yes I I think that understanding is is quite limited I I I uh, we pride ourselves in 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 an understanding that I'm not really sure if we actually possess hmm. uh, I I I'm I was drawn to Heisenberg and and the Copenhagen interpretation because it's a basically a capitulation where they said okay we cannot look at the world with with just one set of eyes 
and I and that is something that that I have gone through as a personal experience. I I was very, I was a, I was when I was about thirty. I was I was I was very. I had a very rigid mindset. I was a believer, a true believer, and uh, and I went through a couple of experiences that just smashed all that apart. And 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 it was painful. It was damaging. Hmm. I. I, I I lost faith in literature. I, I couldn't write. I couldn't read. Uh, I I just couldn't. It's like they hand you a Bible after you've lost faith. No, you just mm-hmm. look at the words and you say this does not make sense. And after that, uh, I had to sort of expand my worldview. I had to start considering ideas and differing models of the world. And and while it, it doesn't solve the problem, I do believe that. If you have, uh, as the Copenhagen uh, scientist said, if you have more than one interpretation of things, if you have overlapping schemes of thought, you get a wider view because because it kind of shows you, well, this is the blind spot that this particular language has, and this is the blind spot that this one, this other one has. But, but, but most of us, we go through life, and we sort of choose among the beliefs that there are, and we say, okay, this one. But if mm. this other thing contradicts it, well, I'm not going to let it in. I'm not going to. I'm not even going to think that way. I don't think that we're going to get very far that way. I think we have to have these almost contradictory sets of eyes on things if we want to have a larger picture. That uh, idea of uncertainty is, uh, as you say, in one way, very counter to what we think of as science, as coming up with the answer, the way to describe something, the way to experience the world. And there is something so contradictory about Heisenberg's certainty about uncertainty, that there is no way to observe the atomic particle except by distorting it. And you therefore, you can't have faith in an absolute. It has to be, to use your words, overlapping. And then that uncertainty plays out so beautifully in the way that you describe Heisenberg's life. And I'm, and you know, I couldn't help but think of the play Copenhagen, as I was, uh, as I was reading it, which has that idea of the uncertainty of a meeting between Niels Bohr and and Heisenberg. Did you think at all about that play when you were when you were thinking about Heisenberg's life? I, I leafed through it. I looked at the book. Um... I, I don't think we should be too certain about uncertainty because, hmm. uh, and in our views of science, if if, if people and the, just in the way that Heisenberg came to these ideas by looking deeply at the world, if you look deeply at science, you will not find a a single glimmering truth. You will find a, a, a great variety of thought in in any science. That's what you're going to find. People look for answers when when and they're going to find opposing theories they're going to find polemics they're going to find they're going to find degrees of certainty which i find so important no how well do i know what i know how sure i am i of this what's the degree of uncertainty that i have to consider is this it's a sort of uh, one of my idols is john von neumann a mathematician and, and he came up with this concept it's technical. It's a technical concept of, of quantum um, quantum probabilities, but but 
if you scale it down to to our non-mathematical level of thought, it kind of says, okay, um, we should have more than just a true, untrue value. We should have more than a two-valued logic. We should have a many-valued logic. Hmm. We should always think about things in those terms. And um, it's funny how we we bump into these ideas which are sort of trying to point us towards a a more plural, a, a... a wider and a stranger view of the world, and, me, and we immediately want to set them in stone. We want to enshrine uncertainty. We want to say, mm-hmm. well, the world makes no sense just because we found out that the particular sense that we used to have about it is, is wrong or limited. It's always this, we have a natural tendency which is ingrained to, to think in black and white. I think that's an evolutionary thing. Uh, I don't think we would have, you know, monkeys walking the savannah can't really be too delicate about well is that a tiger or maybe it's not a tiger maybe it's you know my friend dressed as a tiger maybe maybe i'm dreaming maybe i just ate a magic mushroom and i'm stoned they really have to decide very quickly just reality demands that level of, of certainty and and i don't but but i believe that art if it if it gives us something is these rare moments of wonder where you just see, see you see things in their multiplicity and you're kind of it's hard to to walk a couple of steps with that with that top of mind uh and i i really try to to make texts that put you in that space if i can and for that you have to go to the people and the ideas that are sort of um naturally point towards that that overlapping realities and overlapping truths and and ways of envisioning the world seems what's missing from these moments in which nations and peoples decide to endeavor upon wars and and brutality and barbarity that comes from the instinct to find a totalizing one reality and you know one of the core revelations of your novel is the seeming inevitability of participating in evil even by these scientists who find in their discoveries these overlapping ways of viewing things you dramatize some of the great scientific discoveries of the 19th and 20th centuries but each one of those discoveries is uniquely interwoven with destruction and death Walter Benjamin wrote that for every document of civilization, there was a flip side, which inscribed a document of barbarity. Can you speak a little bit about your ideas of the concept of science and history as always woven through with these elements of destruction and barbarity? Oh, I think that just goes so deep. And it's it's something that we're never going to, we're, we're never going to get past that because I don't, I, I hate to go into philosophy, but I do think that there is this fundamental split. There is, there, there will, we, we cannot get past this duality. It's, it lies at the heart of what is tragic about our, our existence and not just human existence, but any existence. It is, it goes back to matter and, and antimatter. It does not seem possible. You cannot have a single value. And that makes 
imbues everything we do with a sense of tragedy. And, 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 and you can see it, let's not even think about wars and, and, and death. Let's just think about how, how, how we love our children. And we know that we will probably be their ruin. It's, it's everywhere you look. Uh, you really can't get past that. And because of that, because of that, that truth that I think pains everyone, even if they're aware of it or not, we have this other profoundly deep drive towards totality, mm. universality. We want, think, we, we yearn for it. And that's probably one of the main things that lies behind our, our thoughts of God. We have a yearning for totality. That's, it's probably at the heart of sex, what, why we enjoy being with another in that way, in that complete way. There's a yearning for that. There's a yearning for I. I simply try to to show moments in history, moments in science, moments in some character's life, where where, where they are brought face to face with that, and and that is maybe why so many of them uh, go through mystical experiences because that is the fundamental mystical experiences: the union of opposites, this this mm. fusing into one. And 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 I, but but leaving mysticism aside, I really just think we 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 are never going to get past it. This these paradoxes and contradictions, this this game of life and death, these opposites, they are really and and you sort of have have to make peace with them. That is that is probably all that we can do. You look at the world, you see it in its beauty and its horror, and you try to make peace with it in any mm. way you can. And perhaps that is why there is such, I know you said you're not particularly interested in madness, but there is the sense that the delirium that these scientists that you describe go through is the encounter with that very fact that we can't get past it. I'm thinking oh, of... I think delirium sort of, it, one of the reasons I'm interested in is because it is in that state of delirium where you can be so you can be brought out of this duality mm. and you interact with things that are not tied down to one value no and 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 that is an experience which is horrifying and it's also liberating delirium horror ecstasy all these experiences uh, show you that no matter what you think because we are so tied down by our thinking it's 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 pathetic, no? We have this idea, we're fixated on reason. And I, I always think, well, half of our lives are spent in a state of delirium. When we sleep and dream, we come up to the raw, unhinged powers of our imagination. And that's half of our lives. I'm just saying, well, just close your eyes during the day and you're going to get an experience for that. And it's humbling. What's important to me is that these experiences are humbling. Yes, you can go mad with power. You can believe that you're enlightened. But if you experience them more than once, you will be humbled by them. It's, it connects you to the fragility that we all share, that all, all things share, not just living things. This 
opens a window for me on to why you wanted to tell Schwarzschild's story because of that idea of a singularity in the totality that seems to absorb everything we know to be true about reality and time and literally sort of suck it away. Um, that singularity seems a a, a great description of what you're talking about, of that state of delirium in which the things we trust to be true turn out not to be. Is that one of the reasons that kind of event for Schwarzschild was so intriguing to you? What was most intriguing to me about his story is that two things. One, one of them is that he was, a, he was a believer in the fact that true knowledge needs to be an organic whole. And that this splitting apart of science and spirituality and, and, and this this sort of this this lunatic's knowledge that comes from you know you study living things by tearing them limb from limb it it, it and he had a, a, a deep desire to look past that while while at the same time being a, a wonderful scientist and mathematician but what really drew me to his story are two things that I find fascinating. One is, is this, when ideas become flesh, when they become a body, when they, when, when they possess you, when they, when they reside inside you and, and they sort of begin to inhabit your, your entire body, not just your, your faculties of reason. Uh, and the other thing is that because he was he was actually dying from a from a blistering disease while he was working these equations out. Hmm. But the other thing that is fascinating is that his discovery, and I have to say that the whole thing about him seeing the future and the black hole, that is fiction. He died without knowing what a black hole was. He just looked at this mathematical singularity and said, "Well, okay, there's lots of infinities in mathematics. I'm sure this is just." another one of them mm. i i chose to say no this this knowledge even if it's not conscious his mind was the first one to touch upon two singularities using einstein's equations and that that has an effect even if it's not felt even if it's not conscious when the second thing is that <laughs> it, it's both the paradox of him confirming the theory because this was a confirmation for Einstein. He said, well, this exact solution, he weaponized it. He said, he, he showed it to everyone. He said, look, I'm right. Hmm. I'm absolutely <laughs> right. Look at this. And then if you look deeper into it, I'm like, okay, I'm right. But then my entire theory and all the equations break down into a point of unknowability, of singularity. And I, I think that just exemplifies uh, this tragic this that's how our mind advances we 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 suddenly possess a, a profound truth about the world and it almost disappears in our hands hmm. this notion of what is imagined for you as you are trying to understand these lives and these minds brings me to the idea of the book's genre um in my conversation with the novelist Karina Licorice Quinn, she recommended your book to me, but initially referred to it as nonfiction. It strikes me that this is precisely the liminal space in which your book lives, somewhere between fiction and history. 
Does genre matter to you as a writer? And is it a problem if readers think that you're writing nonfiction? No, I, I, I could not care less. Um, I think John, I'm always looking for, for works that are, that are, that inhabit that liminal space. It's, it's where monsters come from. It's, it's mm-hmm. where, you know, the fault lines in, 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 in the logic of the world. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm thinking of, I don't know, Bruce Chatwin or, or Werner Herzog mm-hmm. or, uh, so many, this obsession with, with genre, uh, really has to do with, I think it has a lot more to do with industry and, and how we need as human beings, we need to talk about things. We need to talk about them to understand them. And so it really arises from communication when, when what is most, I, I, we all know that when we, when we come up against something like a movie, the best thing you can say is like, well, I don't know what it is. I don't know what I saw. It's like, and, and I think, how do you get there is all what I'm always thinking about. If I, if I think about genre at all is how do you get there? How do you mm. write a book? But the truth is those considerations were just not present. They're not present. I'm not interested in in thinking about thinking or or reading or writing about writing these sort of recursive operations i I am much more interested in the exalted creation of something that you don't when you don't know what you're doing when you don't know what you're doing and, but and besides it's a very naive thing to call something nonfiction. Mm-hmm. Yes, very naive. Reality is absolutely riddled with fiction. It, it, it's 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 there in in every waking moment. You ha- you carry around this thing inside your head that mixes perception, imagination, memory all the time. So so I think everyone is is in, people need to speak and categorize because that's how we believe that we comprehend mm-hmm. we believe we comprehend something when we we have a and this is probably going to happen with my book it's they're going to find some when you find john banville in the guardian said a non-fiction novel and mm-hmm. and 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 my publishers were delighted <laughs> because they're like oh great now we have a way to talk about this and i was I was so angry <laughs> because he's, he's good. He's, he's a wonderful writer. Yeah. And that's, and that's sort of what the imagination does. It, you, you lasso things, you, you put your hands around them and you say, okay, this now has this shape, but I'm sort of interested in, in the, the goo and the liquid that, that just, you know, it crawls between your fingers and it's, you can't really grasp it. How do you, how do you do that? I don't think you can do that rationally. I think you have to give yourself over. I think you have to create something that is weird. Could I um, take you in a in a, a route that you m- may not be interested in because genre is not interesting to you? But I think that the politics of what is allowed to be history is part of the danger of genres and so that you know as nations and peoples grasp for absolutist history as a way of rationalizing their brutality uh, against others that we see the importance perhaps of literature as ability to disrupt 
things like genre, um, especially when it comes to history, because it gets wielded in this way. Of course, I think I think nonfiction can be very easily weaponized, and I I believe in what you say. I think literature is an excuse to interrogate reality, but it's also an injection. It's it's like a depth charge. You you throw it down and you just watch it explode. And if you and if, and, and 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 that's how you. I really think that's the way it works. You you sort of plunge it down into the earth and you and you make it explode and then you look at what's left hmm. so uh, it's also a great tool people people believe that fiction is sort of an entertainment now it's sort of well this is fiction so it's not real so i shouldn't take it that seriously but but it is i don't know if we have a better tool as human beings to to surf and to to chart the, the deranged inner landscapes that we carry inside us, I think it's there is a sort of deep truth that can only be accessed through fiction, because because it, it's because we do inhabit we need to dream up and think a future before we can inhabit it inhabit it. So we need the, 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 the views of reality that only fiction can give. Otherwise, we would just, I mean, just imagine if we only lived in the real world, it would be hellish. It would be really hmm. absolutely hellish. Uh, uh, and when there have been historical attempts to sort of limit what we can think about, what we can talk about, what we can publish, the types of ideas we can entertain, it has become a hellscape. This mm. sort of, this is the only accepted view of reality. This has a flip side, of course, because everything has a flip side. And I think, in particular, you in the United States are living this this demented outpouring of of conspiracy and and and, and, <laughs> and, and strange imagination, and and and, of, and and then there's a, a backlash when. Everybody is, we all, they all want to get back to reality. I'm just saying that the reality that they can go back to is a lot stranger than they would like. This gets to the idea for me of the relationship of science's interest in telling truths and the way that science can at times push back against exactly what you say, the limitation of what can be said and thought, especially under, particularly under fascist regimes. And we, we think about, I, I think, at least in the United States, as fascism as particularly anti-science with Trump and Bolsonaro, but your novel is a reminder that science can be used as a cudgel by those who wish to limit the ways we can we can think and understand and this is sometimes because of science's unpredictability the story you recount of fritz haber connects a line through the life-giving science of nitrogen production and zyklon b the concentration camp poison used to create a genocide against european jews when you're thinking about science as something that can attempt to push back against limitation, how does politics and ethics come into it for you in this in this particular project? 
Well, the, the first thing is that I think science is a wonder. And, and like all wondrous things, it, is, it has the potential to do great harm and, and, to, and to perform miracles. And, but and mm. but there is also, also, also a sense in which science is also a, a, a sort of metaphysical delusion. This, this idea, this delirious idea that, that the world conforms to an order and that, and that order and, and a type of order that we can not only discover but also comprehend. There is so much at stake there. There is so much that you have to question. None of those things, we don't have certainty about any of them. We don't really know if, uh, if the world conforms to the types of orders that we can understand. We don't really know if there are subtle ways and mechanisms about the world that simply cannot be probed or understood by the mechanisms of science. But, and, and there is a, there is a science has, has a terrible freedom, which is absolutely necessary for, for its own working and for our survival. Like art, science can and will do anything, absolutely anything, anything that is possible. It is, it is a means available to, to all ends, but it's indifferent to them. It doesn't choose. That is very different from, from people and from what we have to do as societies. We then have to choose how we employ the, the Promethean fire that we, we've been given. And I don't think we should be too down on us. Because, yes, we will rip the inner core of the atoms apart and just <laughs> irradiate the entire world. And we're going we're gonna to burn trees until the sky is black. But we can also, and we have many, many, many times, said, we're not going to do this anymore. We're, we're not going to allow for this type of experiments. We are simply going to make a moral choice because it is what we believe is right at this moment in time. Hmm. Uh, so we shouldn't be naive, and we also shouldn't be too pessimistic, because I sort of have a view that everything terrible will happen. It will happen, and yet we will deal with it. We will move ahead. We will make better choices, because it's really a matter of survival. I mean, the first time we created a knife, of course we used it to plunge it into living beings and kill them, and then we started using them against ourselves. But, but that doesn't mean that it's the only way forward. It, there, is always, uh, there is always hope for moral choices. And, and I think that the best way to look at this is not to look at societies or, or to look at institutions, because we tend to project our own uh, dark side onto them. Now, these politicians, these countries, well, just look at yourself, look at your individual choices. Most people do not walk around stabbing each other. Most mm. people don't. That's why we're still here. There is a great love and compassion in our species. We are a cuddly mammal. That's really what we are. We also have well, we don't have them anymore, but we used to have fangs and claws. Now we just have other things now to kill ourselves with. 
but I don't think everything is lost and I don't think we will ever reach a point in history where where science becomes a cuddly PC undertaking because we'd go extinct. The, The assurance that science can be used for anything, as you say, drives two figures in your book, Mochizuki and Grothendieck, to leave society, to to see their work as impossibly intertwined with ideological positions that they simply cannot accept. And rather than your optimism, they choose reclusivity and the renunciation of mathematics and science. Why are you interested in this kind of abject refusal of society? Well, for several reasons. First, I'd just like to point out that Mochizuki is a working mathematician, and I, that's completely fictionalized what I wrote about him. Uh, but that's not the case with Grothendieck. Grothendieck mm-hmm. is, I mean, his story, it reads like fiction, but that is his actual life, and it's, and it's wonderful. The reason I'm interested in, in, in is for personal reasons. I think that there is a certain voice that can only be heard if you're silent. I have had experiences, long periods of time, months at a stretch, where I haven't, where I haven't seen another human being. And uh, just, like, just like what happens with um, elemental particles, all the weird behavior of quantum mechanics is really only observed in isolation. As soon as you bring one electron close to another, they're going to be concrete. They're going to have defined possibilities. If you isolate matter, it starts to behave in strange ways. And that is something that anybody, anybody can, can experience if they're inclined. You, know? you just take a couple of steps away and you start to experience a profound weirdness. Hmm. And in that weirdness, there, I, I think there's two very definite experiences that that um that are that you can read about in Grothendieck's life the first one is a, is a vast space that opens up and it's and it's this wonderful pregnant silence that you can that you can find an incredible amount of freedom inside of it it it's um uh, it's something that that feels akin to to drunkenness because you suddenly have this you're not limited by, by other people's views on you. You're not limited by your use of words. It is a very dangerous experience. It's very easy to lose your mind in the absence of others. Mm-hmm. I really think that it's only others that keep you sane because you share a common sense. The second moment after that is... <laughs> it's sort of... it's a plethora of voices you start hearing your own mind you start to to feel this multiplicity that i spoke to you about before you start to feel it inside you you can hear it it's uh you become attuned to this wonderful and and that is scary as hell it's really scary there's no sane way to deal with it because you're supposed to be by yourself and suddenly you're not Hmm. you're really not by yourself you are 
in tune with, with powers that live through you and that you live thanks to them. And, and this drives you away from, from, from anything that you can speak about rationally. It takes you to a place where, where you, it's very hard to share with others. It is a sort of madness. But I think that only in that particular headspace, which you can have, and people have this just in their apartments. No, you don't have to be at the top of a mountain. Mm-hmm. It, it, it sort of, it's an experience that takes you away from the fact that we all, we think with other people's thoughts. We, we think with their words. If you take a, a long step away from that, and, and that's why I'm so fascinated by people like Bruce Chatwin or Werner Herzog, because that's the first thing they do. They say, take a walk, just walk, walk away. Mm-hmm. When you walk away, you'll start experiencing things that you thought were just, it's scary, it, it's freeing, and it's, it, it's fascinating. But I do think that people have to have that experience. They, just think about your own life. I mean, you have been surrounded by others for the entirety of your life. People go on retreats and meditate in Nepal, and they are surrounded by others. Mm-hmm. So there's this whole world out there. I want to talk for a second about the subjects of your of your book, and that is that you've you've centered in on almost entirely European thinkers, and in particular Germans. And there is in Chile a, a past that is interwoven with Germany and the the atrocities of World War II. And you drop a very pregnant reference to this when you um, when you at least lightly reference La Colonia Dignidad or the Dignity Colony, which is an outpost of German language and culture in Chile started by a form, former Nazis after the war. It is meant, at least as it's projected outside, to be a place of Germanophilia, but it was in practice a site for imprisonment and torture of dissidents in the Pinochet regime, as well as significant child abuse. What did you want to say about Chile's relationship to Germany by offering us German geniuses of science, but also this stamp of Nazi propaganda on Chilean soil? I didn't really want to say anything about Chile. That's, that's, that's to be honest. Uh, if I wrote about these scientists in particular is because there was a great flowering of, of science in, in, in that part of the world at that period of time. And so I, was, I, I came to the ideas first. There was just the black hole, quantum mechanics, chemistry, the war. But what you mentioned is Colonia Dignidad is still here. It's still standing, mm-hmm. which I find absolutely unbelievable. The people who suffered, because it was a, the leader basically enslaved uh, a small group of, of people. And you can become fantastically rich just by enslaving a small handful of people and making them work 18, 20-hour days. It was a type of, of, of hell that is so vicious, I find it's a sort of black hole right here in the mm. middle of Chile. It is really, there's a wonderful Netflix documentary that everybody should watch because it's the, the level, there's just no other word for it than, than, than evil. It is really an evil place. 
and uh, growing up in in Chile and the dictatorship was just so vicious and so, it was so long and first thing I wrote my first story this story called Antarctica starts here is about a journalist who is keeping trying to find a, a poet a Germanic poet who who's been working with the secret services of, 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 the, of the dictatorship based on a real-life figure that I found, this, this Luftwaffe pilot who came to Chile and sort of worked with our, with our secret services and ended up flying the president's plane. But there was this entire mythology in, in Chile here where we're fascinated by the same sort of ideas that pop up in Nazism, this this return to nature, this, this flowering of pre-Christian thought. It's a sort of neo-pagan impulse. But I, in my book, I'm not really trying to say anything particular about Chile, except for the fact that wherever you go, in this case, I'm, the text that you're talking about takes place in, in a little, little town in the mountains where I, have a, where I have a house and a garden, and which is really the closest I've ever come to inhabiting my own heart. I, I love that place. I love those trees. I, it is, it's a wonder. It's, it's a very special place. And yet it was founded by, by people who came, uh, who escaped the war, and many of them are German, and there's a lot of houses owned by ex-Chilean military from mm. the dictatorship. So once again, wherever I go, even at this place which you would walk, you, you feel absolutely safe, I still have this feeling that I'm surrounded by by these evil men and 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 there's still still every day every time I walk with my dogs and my child, I'm worried because there's someone who poisons who throws out poison and kills the dogs every year. So mm. it's 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 not really I'm not trying to say anything in particular about Chile. I'm trying to say something about the world. Wherever you go, you you can find these this great beauty and this this just incomprehensible evil. Even though you're not trying to say it specifically about Chile, Chile seems to be having this moment in which it is an exemplar of the multiplicities. You've just had the approval for a new constitution, finally putting behind the, the Pinochet-approved uh, constitution. And yet, in last week's presidential election, it was the far-right candidate, some have even called him a Nazi, uh, who got the most uh, percentage of the vote. How, how do you come to any sort of sense of the place you live when there's that much um, tension between what you think of as the multiplicity of ways of being? Well, I think at first, this is this is something that I'm really interested in because it 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 kind of teaches you that you cannot have such a naive view on reality because yes we had we had a social uprising which was I have to say spectacular and terrifying I don't I don't think there is a way to explain to people who have not lived in Chile what the months of the estallido social, the social explosion, which is what we mm -hmm. called it, were like, it was, it, the, I have, the town center, the center of town, whatever city you live in, you have to imagine the town center turned into a set from the movie The Joker, 
that is what it was like. Every single centimeter of wall, everything was destroyed, everything was burnt, everything, the, the entire city was pregnant with, with, with text, just messages, words on the walls. I would go, I would go on, on my bike from the center of town all the way to our house of government, La Moneda. And during that entire stretch, there was not a policeman to be found. And, and, and if, if one of them popped up, everybody would just pelt them with rocks. And it, it felt exactly like one of the movies, in, one of the scenes in the movie of the Joker. It was a spectacular, unprecedented, sort of black hole-ish fall into chaos. It was it was awe-inspiring and, and terrifying and, and, and it was also filled with hope and and we there were millions of us marching. It was exactly the type of thing that that I, that I try to write about and that I try to think about. And that gave rise to well again no to this duality where where we have this constitutional process which I don't think we should be too naive about these things. We tend to say, oh it's fantastic because it's it has parity, gender parity, and we're giving and we're giving a voice to our indigenous peoples that here in Chile have absolutely it's 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 shameful you now when we compare ourselves to other countries. But at the same time, it's ingrained within fighting, there's power struggles, because these are these are power struggles. They're not nice little beautifully wrapped up libertarian impulses it's everything it's it's our entire psychology as a nation coming up from below it is a lovecraftian energy as well it also it, it is also a darkness and that darkness has inspired and even the the bright parts of it have inspired a conservative reaction which at first shocked everybody but then you you start to think about it and it's like well, actually, there's there's something to be said for for this conservative reaction because, well, of course we have to change a lot of things, but that doesn't mean if we change everything, we'll just go back to the same state we were in. <laughs> so, so there is a sort of right now what's happening. Even though, I mean, I have to say we are scared. We we've, we've known what the far right can do. We've seen it. We saw what happened to Trump. We know that there's. Uh, but at the same time, it tempered the discussions. Our left-wing candidates suddenly understood that there's an entire part of the country that he simply wasn't speaking to. So uh, while we are on a knife's edge, uh, there's also a little tiny room for hope because the middle... the. I would say the middle of our political spectrum had, had emptied out and it's slowly being filled. And, and, and we're caught in this. It's, 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 uh, it's very turbulent. It goes from one day, we're swinging from one pole to the other, which if you think about it in physics terms, uh, Chile and the world, I think the entire world right now is like a system that's been pumped with so much energy that you see these massive pendular motions all the time. Because we we haven't settled down into an order, and it's and and all we can hope for is that whatever new order comes out, we will make some progress. No, like after the Second World War, Europe was in ruins, and yet the welfare state came from that. 
nationalized medicine. So I really hope that whatever happens in Chile will we'll take some societal steps, some aspects of the world that I can look at my daughter and say, remember when we were marching? Remember when we were in the streets? Well, listen, you have this because of that. Because there's also going to be things that are horrible. I mean, Cast could well be our president, and he is a fucking Nazi. There's no two ways about it. Hmm. I I want to hold your hope for for what can come out of these moments of great energy and a, uh, and an explosion um, of both democratic outpouring, but also uncertainty. I want to hold that hope, but it seems like such a um, a global situation right now. And I, and I guess that's why in part your book is feels so important to me because it does think of the world in these terms, which leads me to, something really important about my experience of the book, and that is your title, um, which was initially what drew me to it. But in Spanish, it is un verdor terrible, a terrible mm. lushness or greenness. And I wonder, since I, I know that you had a, a real um, intimate hand in the translation process, how, how did that happen? How did this monumental change to the title happen? Well, that's one of the joys and horrors of translation. There are things that you can only say in, in certain languages. We worked with Adrian and with my agents and with the publishers endlessly trying to find an English adaptation. But just like in, in, in good poetry, some, some, some things work and they just cannot be translated. They cannot be put in a one-to-one Every translation you can think about of a un verdor terrible sounds awful in English. A terrible greenness sounds like, I don't know, it's, it's awful. Or a terrible verdure, which is a line that, that Adrian chose, uh, he found for the end of that text. It, it sounds weird. What is a verdure? And, or a greenery or a lushness. It just didn't work. But, but the thing is, then you have to capitulate and say, and this is, this is something that I'll confess. The original title of the book, one of the original titles of the books, was When We Cease to Understand the World. Mm. I changed it when I came up, when, when that line came at the end of the... The Un Verdor Terrible line is important because that set off what the book later became. It was, I had finished Prussian Blue, I had finished that essay, and it ended with a, with a scene with an elephant who was killed with cyanide at Co in Coney Island during the electricity wars between, you know, when they tried to have a standard for electricity. Mm -hmm. And it just didn't fit because I had to end it with, 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 with Haber. And there, was I, and, I, and there was nothing in his life that I could use as a fitting end. And that's the point where I said, well, you know, if reality doesn't take you there, fiction can. And I, and I made that final paragraph up, that letter. It's not, it's not real. And I came to that, that line, un verdor terrible, because it's based on a scientific factoid that I read. No? The amount of nitrogen that we now have is so large that if we were to disappear, we, vegetable life would come back, but with a vengeance. It wouldn't just be, oh, well, we have, because they have so much available nitrogen. So it really would suffocate the planet. And I couldn't translate that. So we chose this other 
the English title is a bit on the nose, but it is really at the heart of the book when mm-hmm. we seek to understand the world. And in German, it's called the blind light because that's also a line from, huh. from Heisenberg where he sees this giant flash of light that, that blinds him. And that is also part of what the book is trying to say. In French, it's called the blinding lights. So maybe it's not the, the it maybe the title in Spanish is better, but it does speak to the multiplicity of the book. I'm trying to say many things, not just that one. It's a beautiful explanation of translation, both what is lost and, and what is gained. And in each of those titles, I, I find something new to admire about the book. When, you know, before we leave you today, I was hoping that you would share a little bit about things that you're reading that are inspirations to you right now and things that you might recommend for our listeners. Well, this year, it was very sad for me because two of my favorite writers died and and they were two writers that I had just met because this book has opened up so many doors for me. One of them is, is Italian. His name is Roberto Calasso. Roberto Calazzo. He, he is, I believe, the last great literary intellectual. He touched on everything from... He's, he's sort of a one-man walking spiritual library. He writes on the I Ching. He writes on, on, on the Torah. He writes about... Uh, Greeks, he writes about the Vedas, you can, he writes about Baudelaire, he is wonderful, I would recommend any book, but there's a particular one of his that's called The Marriage of Cadmus and Harmony, which is the best thing that you can read about Greek thought and mythology, it just blows you away, it, it sort of brings the richness of, a, of another wor- way of seeing the world, how profoundly alien and and how we still seem so coarse and, 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 and unenlightened when compared to these men and women who were just living fantastically rich lives thanks to their mythology. Hmm. Another book I'm reading, which is a constant source of inspiration, is a very short text by Buchner, by George Buchner. It's called Lens, with a Z, Lens. Uh, and that is the first description, I believe, of of schizophrenia, of, of a man who, who, of a poet who loses his mind in a small town in the mountains. And the prose is so fantastic that it's hard to understand because it reads like a 20th century novel and it was written, I believe, in the late 18th century, something like that. Like hmm. it, it's two years before, 200 years before what you, what you would expect. And it's so good that I just read in, in this book by Elias Canetti, uh, the German writer with a very Italian name, <laughs> uh, who, who read, uh, and, and, and his girlfriend hid that book from him. He, he hid it at the back of a cupboard in his room because she knew that if he read this very short 20-page text by this long-ago dead writer, he would not become a writer himself. He would be annulled by its genius. Oh my goodness. It is, it is that good. And another person I write continuous, that I read continuously is a French writer, probably my favorite living writer, is called Pascal Quignard, which I'm going to say in French and try to mangle in English, <laughs> Pascal Quignard or Pascal Quignard. <laughs> <It's> really <laughs> impossible to say. <laughs> 
uh, he has this long series of it's called the last kingdom and it's it's i give it to all my artist friends because you can open a page at random and find the title for your exposition <laughs> for your you know it's it, he is he is that wonderful and he has this it's very sensual it's very it's very smart he he's an expert in everything in 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 taoism in music he comes from a long line of of of, of musicians like stretching hundreds of years back in Europe's history. And he is, if you see a picture of him in, in the internet, you're going to understand what I'm saying. He has eyes that can look through you and everything around you. It's, he's unbelievable. I'm a big fan of, of Elliot Weinberger as well, you know, the, the North American essayist. He's a massive influence. I, I, I am copying so much for him that I really need to meet him soon so mm. I can, you know, ask for forgiveness. <laughs> and the other person who who died this year is is Juan Forn. Forn. Juan Forn is an was an Argentine writer, and uh, he started doing these very short two page, maybe three page texts that he would publish at the back of one of Argentina's major newspapers. And every single he sort of creates a new form where you have a condensed novel of sorts in just three pages. And it is just a joy, an absolute joy. It, it was the first thing I that I could read after I went through, I don't know, some, some very long stretch, a couple of years without being able to 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 enjoy anything I read. And 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 he took me out of that. So I'm really uh I I, I didn't get the chance to meet him in person, but I wrote to him before he died. And there's also J.A. Baker, who wrote The Peregrine, which is a book that Herzog raves about continuously and with it's completely justified. Because if anybody reads The Peregrine, again, it's like, well, you're going to feel very insecure about your own writing. And, and, and finally, this is something that I want to talk about. It's not a book. It's a, it's a Czechoslovak director that for some reason fell in the cracks and that nobody's heard about. Again, his name is impossible. I don't know how to pronounce it, but it's František Blasil. František Blasil, he has this one movie called Marqueta Lazarova, which you can actually find on YouTube with Spanish subtitles. It is the most exciting film I have seen in 20 years. It can only be compared My goodness. to to Andrei Rubliev, you know, by Tarkovsky. And he's unknown. I've talked to wonderful directors and they don't know who he is so there's everybody has to see that movie like today it's called marqueta lazarova frantisek blasil it, it's it's just waiting there it's on youtube you just have to see it I, I mean i'm i'm now both assured that these will change my life but also very afraid to read them and see them for fear that i will never write again well, that happens. I, I I read Borges when I was about 16, and I didn't write a word till I was maybe 25, 26, because they're just giants. Well, I'll have to offer these recommendations with a caveat, um, but they all sound incredible, and I'm certainly going to search them out for myself, and I hope that our listeners will will find the joy and inspiration that you've taken from them. I want to thank you so much, Benjamin. This has been a wonderful conversation. 
Thank you, Chris. It's been great for me too. Well, that's all for now. My great thanks to Benjamin Labatut for joining me at such an exciting time in the life of his book. A day before this was recorded, When We Cease to Understand the World was named a New York Times Top Ten Book of the Year. I already knew it was a special book, but I am especially glad for Benjamin that he will now have many more readers. Benjamin's recommendations will be up on our website at burnedbybooks.com with links to purchase them from independent bookstores. There are two remaining episodes in this calendar year, and each of them promises to be a special delight. First up is Kalani Pickhart, whose debut, I Will Die in a Foreign Land, is a novel of contemporary Ukraine that speaks from a deep past that refuses to be reduced to its relationship to a menacing Russia. This will be followed by a first for the show, an end-of-the-year booksellers roundup. We'll be joined by three book buyers from the legendary in indie bookstores Buffalo Street Books in Ithaca, New York, Changing Hands Bookstore in Tempe, Arizona, and the Seminary, Seminary Co-op in Chicago for a conversation about the best books of the year, the biggest omissions in the major prizes and press coverage, with the hope that you will discover a new favorite book or author and a trove of gifts for the holiday season. That will be an especially fun conversation that I guarantee you don't want to miss. Until next time, this has been Burned by Books. Burned by Books.